Uh, how's it going, Church of Lovin? It's a privilege to be here today to bring God's Word to you. Uh, if I can be honest, apart from the technical difficulties, which are entirely my fault, um, I'm a little bit nervous uh, to, to preach today. Uh, the first one is kind of the, the superficial reason. I, uh, because I go to a different campus than Pastor Steve, I'm, I'm not used to uh, preaching after him. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges is that Pastor Steve has such a deep voice with so much bass that uh, when I preach right after him and you hear my voice that is uh, characterized by its lack of bass, uh, those are some big shoes to fill, and it's kind of intimidating. So if you're watching today and and your your speaker system is having trouble registering the different uh, levels of bass in our voice, it's, it's not a problem with your speakers. It really is just me and my high and nasally uh, voice. But the other reason why, uh, you know, I'm kind of nervous about preaching today is because, you know, I got to be honest, like this sermon uh, is not very well put together. And um, it's kind of still a work in progress. And um, yeah, you know, it's not for a lack of trying or preparation. You know, like I, I, I basically had my sermon outlined in place earlier this week, Monday or Tuesday. I had points all laid out felt pretty confident, you know, about my understanding of the text, and I thought I would be prepared to uh, preach the sermon. I always normally take a lot of pride in the organization and structure and the clarity of my sermons, but this week has been a really, really difficult one, you know. I've gone to the normal people that I normally go to uh, when going over different sermon points and structure, but instead of just going to them once or twice, I've gone to them four or five or six times. I've rewritten this sermon probably a dozen times. I've journaled so much that there's probably hundreds of pages on my computer about this topic, enough to fill a book that nobody would ever read. And, you know, I've just wrestled and gone back and forth so much to the point where last night I texted Tim, who does the slides, I was like, Tim, can we just go without slides this week because I just don't have any clarity on what the points should be. And so this sermon is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than my normal sermons because, yeah, it's not very well put together. It's not very well prepared, and it's a work in progress. But this morning when I was praying, I realized that this sermon is a work in progress because I myself am a work in progress. The sermon isn't put together or polished because I'm not put together and polished. And so this whole week when I was prepping this sermon and I was trying to get gospel points and to present it in a very, very clear way, just underneath the surface, there was all these, I was running this gambit of emotions in my own life given everything that's going on. The way that our city and our country have been affected by the tragic murders, the unjust murders of of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, it's affected me. And as I've tried to process that, I've just gone all over the place. There's some times when I feel outrage, and then there's some times I feel shame and guilt. There's some times that I start to think that I'm starting to understand things, and then I get shown this way that I'm living out of my privilege. I've been all over the place. And the reason why I'm, this sermon isn't going to be that put together is, again, because I'm not all that put together. But I say that because, because I've talked to a lot of you guys this week. 
a lot of brothers and sisters at our church. And I think that there's a chance that maybe you relate to that in some way or somehow. That maybe you're not put together today. Maybe you are uh, running through all different types of emotions. Maybe you're thinking about your past and the ways that you've been involved or the ways that you haven't been involved. Maybe you're analyzing things and maybe even overanalyzing things. Maybe you feel exhausted. Maybe you feel guilted. Maybe you feel ashamed. Whatever it is. Maybe we as a church are not put together right now. And maybe that's the way that it's supposed to be. But in those times when the answers to the problems that are plaguing us are not easy to find, when it's not clear to us, when we, can't, when we have to break down this facade that everything is okay and everything is right with me, when we have to admit that we're kind of broken up over things, then thank God we have the word of God to turn to. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to turn to the word of God. And it's in his word that we'll try to make sense of all the hurt and the pain and the brokenness that we experience or see in our world today. So today's passage, right, it's a passage that has to do with bond servants and masters. Now, in respect to the passage, we have to we have to resist the temptation to make the leap that this is a passage that has to do with racism. I understand that when the text here says bondservant, that word doulos is often translated in other translations into slave. And so there's a lot of other translations that you could look to and say this is a passage about slaves and masters. And I understand because of our histories, uh, our country's terrible history with the racist institution of slavery, that we could jump and say, well, this passage obviously has to do with racism. Is it condoning uh, slavery? Is it condoning racist institutions? But I would say that we need to take a step back because I don't think this passage actually addresses racism. Because if you look at the historical context of the institution of slavery during these ancient times, it had very little to do with race. I can point you to a lot of different commentaries, and it seems to be uh, the consensus that it really doesn't have a lot to do with race. But I will say this. It has a lot to do with power, and it has a lot to do with privilege. Right? Because you, you look at this position between the bondservant and the master, and you have, a, you have this, this imbalance of privilege that exists between the two people. Right? You have one group who you could describe as the oppressed, and you have the other group that you, have, that you could describe as the oppressors. And if you aren't careful, you could just look at this passage and think, Paul is just telling these people that the secret for the oppressed and the oppressors to get along is this. Wait for it. I'm going to tell it to you. This is the secret sauce. Just be nicer to each other. Just do what you're supposed to do. Right, because you could read this passage and it says, bond servants obey in everything. And you could read this passage and Paul saying, masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly. And you could say, Paul, is that seriously what you're telling us to do? That that's the way that we can be reconciled? That that's the way that we can be in better relationship with each other? By just telling us to do what we're supposed to do, right? Because the bond servants would say, thanks for telling me I'm supposed to obey my master. Because everything in society, everything in culture, all the laws say that that's the expectation of me already. 
And the masters could look at Paul and be like, hey, thanks. Thanks for the great advice, Paul, that, that in order for us to be in relationships that reflect the glory of God, all I have to do is treat my bondservants fairly and justly. But, I'm ta- but, but I want us to see that the, pow- the power inter- differential that is at work here because, this, because of this question. Who gets to decide what is fair and what is just? Who gets to decide what is fair and what is just? Because most people... Right? Most people who have power or agency or privilege, they wouldn't say that they're unjust or unfair people. It'd be like, I'm just doing things the way that they're supposed to be done. I'm just doing the way that my parents or my grandparents did them. I'm just doing what's legal. I'm just doing what is best for me. But the position of power and privilege is this. They get to decide what is fair and just in this world. They get to decide what is right. And the problem with that is that when people in privilege are more concerned about the benefits of a system or a culture, how it benefits them, than they are about people, then nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to change. The problem with privilege is this. Here's an example. I like to go to this pie shop called uh, Who's Your Mama? If you, if you haven't been there, it's a, it's a really great pie place. And there's this t-shirt. Every time I go there, probably more than I should, but every time I go there, I look at this t-shirt, and it reads this. Equal rights are not like pie. More for, you, more for them doesn't mean less for you. More for them doesn't mean less for you. But the problem with the way that the world addresses privilege is that the people who have privilege treat their privilege like it was pie. They say more for them means less for me, and if less for me means that I'm going to suffer, I'm going to lose my benefits, that I'm going to give up what I'm entitled to, what I've historically had, what I've benefited from, then we're just going to leave things the way that they are. And so the problem with the world's view of privilege, the way that the world responds to privilege, is that nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. Because the people in power are more concerned with the benefits of privilege than they are with people. And I think we can all kind of see that we can't just sit around and hope for the world to change. We can't just sit around and think that this, this, this protest or, or this action or, or this campaign, this is going to change what has historically affected us. It's not going to be the solution to the problems with privilege in this world. Because, I mean, you can just look at the history of our country, right? Because next week is going to be Juneteenth. For those of you who don't know, it's, it's what black Americans, it's, the, it's a holiday that black Americans celebrate, and, and, and more Americans are, but historically black Americans celebrate to, to recognize the end of slavery in this world, in this country, Right? And that was 150 years ago, the end of slavery. But if you guys haven't watched it, I, tell you, I, I really recommend watch the 13th documentary on Netflix. And you'll see that little has changed in 150 years. Because we went from slavery to Jim Crow and from Jim Crow to the mass incarceration of black and brown people. And, all, and though on a surface level things have changed and they've gotten better, when you look at it, 
In terms of the imbalances of privilege, things are really kind of the same. Things haven't changed. Another example, I went to a protest and, and there's all these uh, chants or mantras that people uh, recite at these protests. One of them is no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. And you know, that goes back to the, it has its roots in the 80s. It's not a new thing. It has its roots in the 80s. No justice, no peace. They've been saying it since the 80s. It has its roots in the 80s. And just to put that in context, I have my roots in the 80s. That mantra is as old as me. That's a very long time, almost 40 years old. And yet they still chant it today in protest because so little has actually changed. That's the problem with privilege is because the people with power and privilege in this world won't let anything change. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just tell bond servants and masters that you guys should just be nicer to each other, you guys should just be more pleasant with one another, you guys should just do your role. He doesn't say that. What he says in this text is, bond servants obey everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people please, but with sincerity of heart, fearing what? Not them, but fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Are you saying, stop looking at, looking at it as if it's just a, a matter of the relationship that you have with this person of privilege, but think about Jesus and likewise, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you, what, also have a master in heaven. He's saying, stop acting like it's just you and this person who, who lacks privilege, who lacks power. Stop acting like you just have to be nicer and fair to that person, but remember that you also have a master in heaven. And what Paul is saying, he's like, no, it's not just about being nicer. It's not just about falling into place, but it's about the radical change that happens to these relationships of privilege and balance when Jesus enters the picture. Because Jesus turns everything upside down. Because you think about it, right? And for those of you guys who know about Jesus, my question for you would be, what, what would happen if Jesus were like us? How different would our lives and our world be if Jesus was just like you or me? Because when you think about us, we're all concerned about our rights and what we're entitled to and what we deserve and what we ought to have. We're so considered, even if you have just a smidgen bit of privilege, you're like, I'm going to live in that privilege. And if Jesus were like you and me and he was overly concerned and overly focused on his privilege, then he would never would have left heaven to come into this world. He never would have given up the glory and majesty to be born in the likeness of men. And he would never would have given up this idea of what is just and right for him to go to a cross and to die and pay the punishment for our sins so that we could live. None of it would have, if Jesus were like you and me, none of us would be saved. 
None of us would know God. None of us would be reconciled with him. But this is what I mean when I say that Jesus turns this, the world's idea of privilege upside down. Because, when you, again, this idea of this privilege pie, the world says to people with privilege, more for them means less for you, and the people with privilege are like, nah, I'm okay. Because what I'm concerned about is my privilege. I'll pass. But when the same world, when Jesus is born into the same world and this idea that more for them means less for you, Jesus said, I'm good with that. Sign me up. I'll give it all up for their sake. And I think when Jesus does that, what he does for us is he models what love is. Because love is not primarily concerned about right and wrong. It's not primarily concerned about what you're entitled to or what you deserve, what you've earned or what you've merited in this world. But love is actually laying down what you might think that you're entitled to, what you think is right and fair for the sake of the other person. You see, the, the world basically tells you this. The world tells you that it will love you if you do everything that's right. The world tells you that love is a reward for your right and just behavior. It's a privilege for those who act justly and fairly. But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells you that you are loved. You are loved. And from that place, you can live out a life that is just and fair. I am not trying to tell you that because Jesus loves you, you should be a pushover in this world. I'm not trying to tell you that because Jesus loves you, that you should just let injustice happen in our cities and in our communities. That's not what I'm saying. Because the Bible says a lot about justice. You go through the Old Testament and he talks about justice all the time. You look at the Psalms, you look at most of the prophets, and he's talking about justice, justice, justice. And Jesus on the cross does not contradict or devalue the importance of justice. But this is what Jesus does. When he comes into this world and he says, uh, you've heard it said, love your, en- love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you that you should love, the- you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's not saying pretend like the people who persecute you aren't persecuting you. He's not telling you to repress it and to ignore it, but he's saying even those people, before they repent and before they stop persecuting you, you have the power and you have the calling to love those people. Why? How? Because that's what I did for you on the cross. Now, to follow up that question, here's another quick one. What would it look like if we actually did that? What if it would it look like if we actually lived lives that reflected Christ's radical realignment of privilege in this world? What if we were willing to give up what was right and right for us and what we were uh, entitled to and what we think we would deserve so that we could love other people? And that's what this passage is talking about. 
The first couple chapters of Colossians, Paul's just talking about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and how it should change your life. And here in this passage, he's taking all these relationships of privilege. He's talking about husbands and wives, fathers and children, and bondservants and masters. And he's saying, if you love each other like Christ, if you're less determined to live lives that are primarily focused on what you deserve and what you've earned out of life, if you do that, and you let the love and the peace of Christ rule in your lives, then what is going to happen? Think about that. There will be peace. There will be love. That people will look at this and they're like, oh my gosh, people are supposed to be opposed to one another, are actually loving people in Christ-like love. And, then, and, and, and this is what happens. If we love people the way that God loves, then Scripture promises that His love is made complete in us and we will experience his presence. Scripture tells us that when we love people like God loved us at the cross, that we will actually get to see him in the brokenness of this world. Scripture tells us that when we love each other this way, that the world will see and know God because it's not just the way that God loves, but it is who God is. And so I'm telling you if that if you're all about justice, bless your heart, that's a great thing to be passionate about. But if your ultimate goal in this world is just this world where everything is fair and everything is shared, where the balance of the scales are even, then what I'm telling you is that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't say that your dream isn't a good one, but it says that your dream is not enough. That as believers in Christ and believers that a God who had all the privilege and power in the world laid it all down to become a servant so that we could know his God, so that we could be reconciled and know his love, then I tell you that your dream just isn't big enough. That we have to be dreaming for a community, for relationships that really reflect the love of God in the way that we love one another. And that is how we can change the world. That's how we can usher in justice and peace into this world. So how does that happen? Uh, you know, like, the, the, one of the great things about Colossians is that in, if you consider the context of what's happening here, as opposed to, like, when he talks about similar things in Ephesians 6, 6 in, in Colossians, we, we get to see how this is actually being lived out. He's saying, yeah, Husbands and wives, uh, father and children, bond servants and masters, you guys should all love each other as Christ loved you. And this is going to be the way that we change and restore and redeem this world. But the context of it is that Paul's actually writing in the context that this is actually playing out in real life. Because during this time in this church at Colossae, there was this guy named Philemon. There's a book, a letter written to him and in, the, in the Bible. And Philemon is this upstanding guy. He's righteous. He's a holy guy. He's a great character guy. Paul expresses so much love for this man. And, and, and then there's this, and, but the thing is, he's, he's a slave owner. He's a master. And this guy Onesimus is his slave. And something happens between these two guys. There's some kind of disagreement. There's some kind of dispute, conflict, whatever. It's not clear. But basically, Onesimus, the slave, basically says to himself, you know what, I'm not going to get a fair shake. Things aren't going to work out well for me. The, everything is, the, 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 the cards are stacked against me. Philemon has all the privilege and I have none. And he basically says, I'm out of here. And he flees and he goes to Rome and he finds Paul and he's saved. He hears the message of Jesus Christ and he's saved. 
And what Paul is actually doing is he's having Onesimus bring this letter back to the church at Colossae with this letter to Philemon. So we actually see how this reconciliation of power and differences are actually playing out. So two quick things for our people in terms of how this actually plays out in our lives. Paul is not, when you, when you think about the context of this letter, and when you think about Paul's Christology, I think what Paul is really, he's not really saying so much, servants obey your masters. What he's really saying is, servants be like Christ to your masters. And likewise, he's not really saying, masters be fair and just to your slaves, but he's really saying, masters be like Christ to your servants. In Ephesians, he talks about submit to each other out of what? Out of reverence for Christ. It's a beautiful thing that he's saying here. And this is what it means to you if you're in a position that you've been, a position of a lack, that, that lacks privilege in this world. If, you're, if you are in a position where you've been marginalized, when you've been the victim of, of injustice, well, this is what the good news of Jesus Christ says to you. The fact that Paul would dedicate four or five verses to address the bondservants of the day is radical. It's radical. No, I mean, the fact that he, would, that, that, he would, that he'd give up so much space in the Bible to talk about bondservants, it's a radical thing, right? And, 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 and the fact that when you read Philemon and you, you read how Paul talks about Onesimus, he calls him his, his, his son in the face, he, he, faith. He calls him his very heart. And the fact that Paul would love Onesimus, somebody so far beneath him, is a radical thing. And I think it all points to the fact that God looks at people who are oppressed, looks at people who are on the outside, and he sees them. He values them. He honors them. That even though the world might mistreat you, even though the world might, not, might be unfair to you and unjust, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that you're not just a victim. I'm not trying to belittle the ways that people in this world who have been victimized by this world, but what the gospel of Jesus Christ says to you is that Jesus and we know it because he went to the cross. He sees you. And you are precious and honored in his sight that the blood of Christ was spilt for you. And that's not just something that you should know in your head, but that's something that transforms the way that you live your life. Because the, like, if you're like Onesimus and you will feel like you should run, if you feel like this world is unfair to you and unjust, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we see it by Paul sending Onesimus back to, to, to Colossae to be reconciled, we see that basically Paul is saying, you're not just a victim anymore. You are not powerless anymore. But because of the cross and Jesus' sacrifice on it, you are empowered. You are not just a powerless person. You are more than a conqueror. And that you can be called and you can be an agent of the change and reconciliation that this world needs to see. It's a powerful thing. And lastly, if you're a person in privilege, if you're a person in privilege, a lot of people, I would imagine, if you have privilege, you think to yourself, man, everyone is always trying to take what I have. Everyone, I have a life that makes me happy, that makes me comfortable, that protects me, whatever, and everyone's always just trying to take something from me. And maybe you look at God that way too. 
Maybe you think that you have a happy life and what God is calling you to do is to, to give up something that makes you happy. But this is the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells you that what you think is privilege is actually a prison. That your wealth, that your race, that your gender, all these things that you place your value in, that you find your identity and worth in, you think those are things that set you free, but they're actually the things that become your master. You start to live lives always trying to protect those things, always trying to keep those things under your control. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ says is, is, is this. You are precious and honored in his sight. You are the beloved of God. You are a child of God apart from all the things of privilege that you try to find your identity in. And that's a radical thing that I think people need to know is that you are loved And because you are loved, you can give up the things in your life that you think are your privileges, but are actually your masters. And so really quick, I just want to leave one last challenge, and we're going to be wrapping up right now, but it's this. I think a lot of times when we look at passages like this, when we look at passages about justice and injustice in the Bible, in today's passage we talk about bond servants and masters and this idea of the oppressed versus the oppressor, Right? I think a lot of times we have this inclination to uh, identify with the people who are oppressed, with the people who uh, are, 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 are unfairly treating, with the victims. But if you look at this passage, as a, if you look at the context of this uh, Bible passage in a whole, there's actually very little that has to do with Onesimus and a lot to do with Philemon. There's a letter to Philemon and there's not a letter to Onesimus, which means that the bulk of the responsibility of reconciliation falls on the person with privilege. And what I want to say and what I want to challenge this church, and this is what God has been challenging with me through this week, is that you're probably the person with privilege. For many of us, that's going to be true. You're probably the person who has power, who has agency in this world. You have privilege. And if you look at the passage in Philemon, when he called, what Paul is calling Philemon to do is he's calling him to give up that privilege. And what we have to understand is that giving up privilege always comes with the cost. It always comes with the cost. And so I would ask you, Churchill Beloved, if you, to reflect on the ways that you have privilege in this world. And to ask yourself, are you willing to pay the price to lay that privilege down? Not because it's the thing to do right now, not because it's going to get you likes on social media, but because Jesus did that for you on the cross. And when we do that with one another, he gets the glory and the world actually gets to see God. I ask you guys to pray about this week, to reflect on this week, and hopefully our church can be a place where privilege of this world is turned upside down. And when we look at this world and the world tells you more for them means less for you, we can respond the same way Christ did. I'm good with that. Let me lay it down. Let's pray. Um, I'm just going to ask you guys to spend some time in reflection. I'm going to ask you guys to spend some time, you know, And I'll just give you this prompt. Like I was reading some of this commentary where people are just criticizing Paul because he didn't come outright and condemn slavery. Like, Paul, why couldn't you just come out and be like, slavery is wrong? And, you know, likewise, I was reading stuff that people were criticizing Jonathan Edwards. 
a great Christian thinker from our country's past who lived during a time of slavery and didn't really preach about it that much in his sermons. So Jonathan Edwards, why couldn't you just come out and condemn slavery? But I just want you guys to spend this time before we go into worship, asking yourself that in 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, when the affluence and the power and the prominence of our nation and the churches in it might be just a memory, I don't know. Will the people 100 or 200 years from now look back on us in this day and age and think to themselves, what wealth, what privilege, what position the church in the United States had and how little they did with it. Because it's easy to look backwards and condemn others for the way that they don't lay down their privilege for the sake of the gospel. But I would ask us to make the most of the time that we have, to make the most of this day that we live in, and think of ways that we can actively lay down our privilege for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. So let's pray as we go into closing worship.